So welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview Treasury professionals about their Treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the Treasury profession going to next. This week's show, delighted to be joined by Kirk von Sielen, the VP and Treasurer at the Brinks Company. Now, a lot of people might know the group. They're actually founded in 1859 and do all things cash management related and moving cash around the world. They're the you know, the world's largest cash management company, unmatched footprint, customers in over 100 countries. So they're pretty much where cash is, they are. So that's ATMs and everything else. Again, we'll get Kirk to explain that. Kirk and I have known each other a few years, and we were just talking before the show that, like many treasurers, he discovered treasury very much by accident. But again, I want him to talk about himself. It's his show. So, Kirk, perhaps you could take us back to the very dim, distant part, the beginning of your tre- your career, and how you discovered finance and treasury, and how you gr- sort of grew and up to now this role with with Brink. So, take us back to the very beginning and university and things. So, over to you. Okay, Mike. Thanks. So, I guess to start at the beginning, or as as close to the beginning as we can get to, I went to school at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. I was uh, fortunate enough to meet my wife there. After school, we went back to her hometown, which is Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I got involved in financial services. I was a rookie stockbroker for Merrill Lynch and then later EF Hutton. And in that short period of time, I discovered that I really couldn't sell anything to anybody. So <laughs> we decided that it was time for a change. And I went, I went back up to New York where I was from, and I got a job on Wall Street as a municipal bond brokers broker. So we, wow. we traded between the dealers. That was great. A lot of fun is the uh, the heyday of uh, throwing phones and staying out later than you should have. And then a little thing called the crash of 87 came along. And in the aftermath, me and 50,000 of my closest friends decided that new careers were in order. And knowing our history in Richmond and liking that, we started looking up and down the eastern seaboard and thought, you know, anywhere but New York at this point. Uh, And we ended up back in Richmond, Virginia. And I went to work for a a small company called Old Dominion Electric Cooperative as their cash manager, a job I was barely qualified for, but I had been an economics major in college. So I could talk about interest rates and had some cognition of what was expected. And it was really, truly a bootstrapping bootstrapping exercise because it's a small company. There was not a lot of uh, structure I had not heard of until the day I walked in this thing called Lotus 123. Take us back to the dark ages there, but worked at it diligently and kind of taught myself what I needed to learn with uh, with some very helpful bankers and, and uh, uh, friends that I made to explain things to me. And I worked at Old Dominion for about seven and a half years. And I was uh, networking with some uh, friends of mine because it was an okay job, but I couldn't see myself staying there until it was time to collect the gold watch. And I'd mentioned to, uh, again, a couple of close friends that I had desired to do more. One day I was sitting in my office and a good friend of mine called me and said, hey, I just got a call from a recruiter. Uh, they're looking for a manager of uh, treasury operations in Northern Virginia. I'm not interested because I'm well-rooted here, but I thought of you. Well, long story short, I pursued the opportunity. turned out to be with uh, General Dynamics, a global air and space uh, defense contractor. Uh, Fantastic company. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be tapped for that role. And uh, we moved to Northern Virginia. Now, that's where I really kind of started getting into really sophisticated and uh, more interesting 
uh, treasury stuff. And Kirk, on that, you say, so what was the sort of treasury set up in an old dominion, you know, probably I would imagine quite traditional treasury, cash management and everything else. And how did that then contrast when you're suddenly general dynamics, global corporate, you know, international and everything else? How, how did you cope with that transition as it were? Yeah, it was it was a change of magnitude predominantly. So Old Dominion had revenues of about 350 million at the time, and General Dynamics, when I joined, was about three billion. Wow. So at Old Dominion, it was very basic uh, cash management, short-term investments, making sure that uh, prepayments were recorded, interest statements were generated. It you know it was it was sort of the amino acids. It's the thing that you need to learn in order to function. But it was never going to be, in, in my opinion, which is why I was anxious to think about other opportunities, as rigorous and challenging as I as I wanted my career to be. Right? You know, we, this is not a charitable pursuit. You know, until I find the documents that show that I am in fact a trust fund baby, I've got to work. And if I have to work, I want to I want it to be interesting and and challenging and something that keeps me in, engrossed. And this was not really doing it for me. So General Dynamics at the time was not the international behemoth that it is now. It was a lot smaller and just really beginning to start its big acquisition run. And in the time that I was there, the company went from $3 billion in annual revenues to about 32 to $33 billion. I'd like to tell you I was responsible for all of that, and that would be a gross exaggeration. I was not. But really, one of my primary roles when I first started there was investing the cash on the balance sheet. They had been through a period of selling off businesses that were not either one or two in their space. Uh, they built up an enormous war chest. There was a changing of the guard uh, in the CEO's office. The, the gentleman who came in was very smart, very strategic, and fantastic in leading the company to where he saw the industry going. So I was investing a lot of cash. I was learning really the kind of the rudiments of cash management on a, on a more sophisticated level. We, we at the time had a treasury workstation in the span of a couple of years. We, we replaced that with a, a, a more robust platform, which was helpful as we grew. And then again, acquired something on the order of, and I'm sure I'm not going to get the number right, but it was 65 or 67 companies for about 12 and a half or $13 billion in the span of a, a number of years. So there was a lot of um, due diligence. There was a lot of M&A integration. There was a lot of financing that was going on. And it was really heady times. The company was growing and it was just really cool, honestly, to be a part of that. And with that, you, you've got sort of a team as well. What You're managing them, coaching them in this huge corporate, as it were. What was the sort of management style what was the culture like there you know obviously it changed you know in terms of scale but what were you like as a boss certainly at that time <laughs> i was a badass no <laughs> i wasn't in fact uh, in, in fact honestly is uh, very flattering because it was myself and my uh, cash manager a lady named neff butler who's fantastic and still a very close friend to this day but we were really the cash management team uh, we a number of years later we were able to hire we did add a little bit here and there and of course now the staff has gotten a lot bigger uh, and i've been gone from there for about four and a half years now but it is a very disciplined organization they really were lean and streamlined there was not a, a belief in a lot of extraneous bodies not surprisingly and i and i think remarkably there was no empire building it was really a fantastic place to work it was it was challenging it was rewarding the company moved fast 
I mean, not like a Silicon Valley, you know, move fast and break things kind of thing, mm-hmm. but there was an expectation that, you know, you came to work every day and you strapped on your helmet and you got into it and uh, not a lot of uh, handholding. Uh, you just were expected to, to go. You know, so, so someone listening to the show today, your challenges as a blue chip of that scale that size you pick up the phone to the bank and they go oh it's general dynamics oh yeah it's kirk yeah yeah what do you want no problem at all that contrasts a lot with some of our listeners that will be like uh, they're in an old dominion they're like well yeah we don't really want your business i'm not saying it's not a good company that's it not criticism but more if you're in a less of a blue chip or you know in in the uk for instance you have FTSE 100s and the top companies yeah gsk yeah we want to deal with you versus Hi, we're XYZ PLC. You've probably never heard of us. We do widgets or whatever. Was it was it like that sort of culture, or you know, you've you've existed in both and you know been through a number of different roles. How did you handle that? Or was it just like, hey, yeah, we're General Dynamics coming to us? What was that? Like? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I have the feeling that you were listening in on some phone calls. But yes, we we <laughs> we were hot stuff, and and we knew it, and we expected that we were going to get the appropriate audience that we needed when we picked up the phone. And, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there with lots and lots of cash on the balance sheet, you don't have uh, a lot of need for uh, bank facilities. We always had one as a, as backup revolver, mainly to uh, support the commercial paper program, of course, but we kind of felt like we dictated the terms. And, and I, I certainly understand the question because the company I, I work for now is a, is a more highly leveraged uh, company. And while it's a, a well-known name and brand, as you, as you've indicated, the conversations are in fact different, but, but we kind of felt like it back then, even with the growth and even with the, the credit that we were consuming, you know, once we consume most of the cash on the balance sheet. And, and, and again, the company's got such an amazing ability to generate free cash flow that that even that was a temporary situation that we, mm-hmm. we just kind of felt like we, we could name what we wanted and we got it generally speaking in terms of complexity of treasury you know i know know a lot of your background and some of the sort of numbers involved you know seven billion in bonds and two and a you know two and a quarter in debt recap and all that so the big ticket stuff what was that like being in that sort of world was it all that you wanted in treasury was that just like stretching your brain all the time yeah it it definitely was was stretching the, the brain because again if you if you Think about the progression. As I do, I sit back sometimes and I, I marvel at where I've been and where I am, and, and wonder where you know tomorrow takes me. But I had the benefit of working for an absolutely fantastic treasurer who was, uh, you know, a brilliant. Uh, number one, uh, two, he knew exactly what he wanted, and there was no ambiguity about it. So he set very high standards, expected them to be met in a time frame that was you know, fair, but compressed. And we just got after it. I mean, and if I, if I think about how that compared to Old Dominion, which was in, in fairness, a smaller and not as agile and nimble uh, entity. And again, a little bit more of an old fashioned, you know, sort of utility versus a, a growing industrial. The contrast couldn't be more clear, but we were averaging four or five acquisitions per year. And so you'd literally get done with one and, and you move on to another. And it, they ranged in size from you know, very small, relatively speaking, to very large. And so it was an exciting place to work. I mean, I came home as energized in the afternoon as I often felt going in in the morning. So the energy level just was high and remained high. So, yeah, it was it was it was a fantastic uh, environment to work in. 
Okay, so you're top of your game. You are, you are the assistant treasurer. You're the, you know, look at Kirk, look at how he's doing. And we discussed this before the show. Actually, do each week with the, you know, with our guests. I sort of talk about some of the areas they they like to talk about. Now, Kirk and I talked about this. So you sit back, you look at this. Uh, nothing's going to change. We've got this all. And you described how suddenly everything changed, literally overnight. And this was four years ago. Talk to the listeners because they, some of them will have actually maybe experienced this firsthand, but a bit of a change. I think that <laughs> that may be slightly understated, but yes, in what was my 20th year at General Dynamics, I was uh, quite surprisingly summoned from a meeting on a Thursday afternoon uh, into my boss's office at uh, 10 minutes till three o'clock in the afternoon. Not that it still stings a little bit <laughs> and told my, my position had been eliminated and the, the government contracting market was expected to contract a little bit, be a little bit tougher. And so as a cost saving measure, myself and seven other colleagues from the corporate headquarters uh, were dismissed that day. I had had this expectation in my mind that this would be the place that I would stay until I was ready to retire. And all of a sudden that was completely dashed upon the stones and, and it, it was shocking. It was, I, I had not an inkling that this was, uh, was out there, but the thing that I, I discovered and you think, well, this shouldn't be a discovery, but you know, when you're going along day to day and you think you're doing exactly what you should be doing and you've been promoted and recognized and then all of a sudden things change is okay, well, what can I do here? I've really got I've got two choices. I can, you know, curl up in, in a fetal ball on the floor and, and, and moan and groan about it, or I can get up and dust myself off and keep going. And I determined that the second path was the only path that was viable for me. And I and moreover, uh, Mike, I, I decided that this was going to be a great life lesson uh, for my children, that you know, nobody gets to where they're going on a straight, unbroken line, and that I could show them resilience and I could mm-hmm. show them resourcefulness that you know you just have to get up and keep going. So I, I plunged myself into networking and working the telephones and burnishing my image. Uh, I was very fortunate. I mean, I do, I use that word. I was very fortunate in that I was uh, afforded uh, outplacement. I took, I took full advantage of it. I got up every day. I put on a suit and tie and I went to the outplacement office because I was going to work and I'm using, you know, air quotes there. And I treated it like a job. And I was fortunate enough that in four and a half months, which I think is you know, fairly almost unprecedented at my mm. level, uh, I landed a treasure job, my first treasure job with a company called PAE, which is a, a smaller government contractor, but certainly within my skill set. And I, I viewed that as a just a, a, a triumphant you know, finish to an unsettling uh, situation. Kirk, just, you know, again, we discussed this before that you perhaps talked about the fact that, you know, with hindsight, which is a great benefit to have, you should have moved earlier or you should have, you know, considered the fact, but you were sort of not comfortable, but it perhaps wasn't in your wheelhouse thinking, oh, well, maybe they might, you know, cut me one Friday afternoon or whatever. Perhaps explain it, you know, to someone who's sitting there and they're 10 years into their role and they're sitting pretty, they're thinking, all right, what advice would you give to them now thinking about it and reflecting on that yeah. time only four years ago? So. Well, you're right. We did talk about it. And I, and I really like the way you've phrased the question because I think you've teed it up nicely. I was quite honestly too comfortable. About 10 years in, approximately 10 years into my run with uh, General Dynamics, 
uh, I got passed over for a promotion. It was a promotion that I, I should have gotten. I had people uh, more senior to me coming up to me over the course of the day saying, uh, you were you were treated poorly there. And so I resolved to get up and to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and, and, and burnish my image and become more public and try to get known. And it's it's a it's a matter of sort of the opposite of being too comfortable, which I which I was until that point, and I, I needed to become uncomfortable. And I took the steps to move in that direction, but honestly, I failed myself in the end because I didn't allow myself to pursue opportunities that were brought to me. And that I think is honestly probably the greatest failure of my career is that I didn't jump sooner. I allowed myself to stay. And, you know, you hear and you, you would be in a better position to know because this is what you do all the time that you see resumes of people that they have a very long tenure. And it almost introduces a creeping doubt. Why have you stayed so long? Why has nobody come along and poached you? What, what is it about this situation that I don't understand? I did that. I, that was me. I stayed, uh-huh. I stayed too long. I should have on some of these things that came along after I you know, reached out and I made myself more known to the community. I passed on because they, in, in my estimation, they were not equal to the job that I was currently doing. Yeah. And that may or may not have been true, but I don't know where they would have led. And that's that's that was a failure, I think. And just going back on that, I think, you know, for those people listening as well they're thinking sitting there in a similar situation and i've done it before when i've looked at people's resumes and i said look did you do 10 years the same job and then i no no i I progressed in i was working for that one company but came in and your case you were sort of manager then became director of treasury ops then senior vp of treasury ops and assistant treasury so you made four different moves within one company i we had connor ma years ago well ages ago a year or so ago on the uh, podcast and I remember he was at, he'd been at Barclays, I think it was. Yeah, Barclays before. And he'd been there 12 years. And he went, oh, I've been at Barclays 12 years. I said, okay, have you done the same job? But no, I've done four different jobs for, you know, very distinct roles. And they'd all built on his experience. But he's working for a, you know, global company. And he's working for an international. You were doing the same. If you just sat and doing the same job day and day, that would be a concern. But you made that progression. But as you say, you've got to sort of plan for those other bits. And we, again, we talked before and you said about kicked yourself a little bit for not pursuing other opportunities. But it's a difficult thing because you're in a good role. You're being looked after. But then, as we say, we sort of you, you then were forced into this, but you got this new role, a PAE, you know, maybe talk through that and, you know, and all reflect on that as well. Think about that next opportunity, something. Sure. And, and you're right. Look, there, there was progression and there was growth and it, it kept me fully engrossed, certainly, but it, it's a judgment call. Uh, I think yeah. other people would look at that and say, oh, no, you were you were fine. Uh, you, you were doing exactly the right thing. But I had ambitions. And I, despite the fact that, you know, I, I said it earlier that I didn't know that this job existed, you know, when I was in college, mm-hmm. I clearly uh, learned, learned differently and had set my sights on becoming treasurer. And I thought I had, I would have the opportunity to at least compete for the treasurer role at some point, if, and when my boss were to, were to leave before me. And so I think that kind of lulled me into a false sense of security, but to the point, the, the, the departure day and the, and the aftermath, I, at that point had decided quite you know, convinced in my own mind that I was not going to settle for anything less than a treasurer job. And I mean, I had a, a number of conversations with people, including a recruiter here in the uh, Washington metropolitan area, 
And I was told by this person that my expectations in terms of title and compensation were uh, at odds with the marketplace and that I should probably take some time to rethink that. And I told this person that we were clearly having a failure to communicate mm-hmm. and and uh, and parted. You know, you always have that doubt. Well, what if there's not one out there? You can be the best prepared candidate in the world, but if there's not a job that is interesting or is a match for your skills, you you could be at odds. But I was fortunate and in a very interesting twist, that very same recruiter that, you know, we'd had uh, a little bit of a disagreement with called me later in the same day and say and said, you will not believe this. But literally 15 minutes after you walked out the door, a situation dropped onto my desk that I think may be right for you. And that was that was PAE. You couldn't write that as a Hollywood movie script and have it be believable, but I'm I'm telling you, it happened, and it it was shocking. And um, so I was afforded the opportunity to go and, and compete for this uh, this position. The the gentleman who uh, turned out to be my boss asked me when he first met me. He said, "You were assistant treasurer at General Dynamics, and now you're sitting in front of me and you're interviewing for a treasurer job at PAE, which is a two billion dollar private equity portfolio company." He said why I don't get it. And I said, well, what you don't know is that I haven't updated my resume and I'm no longer a general dynamics. And so then we had a meeting of the minds and I I was able to win him over and he he needed somebody that had my package of skills. And so there is, I fear, a little bit of a a, a cultural bias. If anybody has seen my picture or they will see that I am uh, not much of it, but I have gray hair. And mm-hmm. I think we're quick to judge that, you know, somebody that looks like that is not going to be adaptable and they're not going to be willing to roll up their sleeves and work in an environment like a, a PAE, a, a private equity portfolio company, very thinly staffed. That's what they needed. They needed somebody to be pitcher catcher and first up. And I was willing to do it in order to get the title. And, you know, absolutely. It was it was a, it was a great fit. Uh, it was a good match for my skills. It, it gave me the opportunity to branch into risk management, which I was very clear with them. I had absolutely no experience in, but I wanted to learn. And I think they liked that. And I think that's something that everybody who listens to this ought to, ought to embrace. That you Don't be content. Continue to push yourself. Continue to want to get better and smarter and more fully equipped to do your job or whatever your job will, will become. Uh-huh. But so that, that was, that was the happy ending to the story. And well, and, uh, but not the end of the story because then you oh, did that certainly role. not. No. Yeah. So then you did that role for a couple of years and did you outgrow the role or what, what the sort of what happened there or you know, two years in it was yeah, that enough I, or what happened? I, I don't think I outgrew it. I think it shrank from me. And the, and the reason I say that is the company was sold by private equity sponsor A to private equity sponsor B. And when the new owners came in, they effectively lifted anything of any interest that had anything to do with corporate finance and took that back to their corporate headquarters. Hmm. So my, my role shrank quite honestly. And I was not imperiled. I could have stayed there, but it was not interesting. It, it just had become less interesting, less challenging. And I thought, you know, I've got probably eight to 10 years before I'm going to want to slow down. And, and if there were no other options in the world, I could do this, but this is not how I'm going to get myself excited and motivated to fa- face each day. Right. So I decided to start uh, networking. I started reaching out on a 
sort of an informal basis to some of my banker friends and said, you know, I'm not really looking, but I am listening. And a very good friend of mine who works for JP Morgan called me uh, one day and he said, we need to meet for coffee on Friday afternoon. And I said, I, I, I really can't. I'm, I'm, I'm so busy right now. And he said, no, no, I don't think you heard what I said. We need to meet for coffee. So I reluctantly agreed, and he introduced the uh, opportunity with the Brinks company uh, at that at that meeting. And it was interesting in that, again, we live in the Washington metropolitan uh, area. Brinks is headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, about 90 miles away. And having lived there as a little boy, gone to school there, and then returned later uh, working for Old Dominion Co-op, I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. There's There's serendipity here. And so I did some research. I found on LinkedIn a number of my bankers who were working with the company. So I was able to pick their brains a little bit. And one of my very good friends introduced me to the CFO via uh, email and was fortunate enough to get an interview in very quick order and get hired on. And it's been about two and a half years now. And it's been an amazing ride because the company is, is growing. It's vibrant. It's energetic. We are very ably led by our CEO and CFO. And it's been an amazing, an amazing place to be for two and a half years. And you talk about there and you're all things cash and the movement of cash and everything else. And everyone's talking about a cashless world. So how are you guys preparing for that? And, you know, everyone says, oh, it's cash, but you know, it is in some developed economies where they're, they're moving towards that, but there's still lots of cash to move around or, you know, maybe describe how that, you know, impacts you guys in treasury there. Well, it's very easy to say that we're becoming cashless, and certainly there are there are inroads that are being made. I mean, you've got certain restaurants that accept no cash, and that's the sort of the public perception. And I know that when our senior executives are talking to investors, this comes up, uh, and and so they meet it head on. They they lead with statistics that show the cash in circulation, cash transactions uh, rise each year at about the level of GDP growth, even here in the United States. So, you know, the United States is certainly a, a very big market for the company, but we are international, as you've said. And in places like South America, it is largely cash transactions. You know, we have a huge presence in Brazil and Argentina mm-hmm. and other places. So, you know, these are issues, as our, as our CEO says in, in these meetings, the people who are asking these questions, you know, you're the one percenters. Yes, you may not be using cash as much as everybody else is, but there are a lot of people out there that are still operating on a cash basis. And you know, the city of Philadelphia, for instance, has recently passed a law that says that you know restaurants, uh, retailers have to take cash because they've found, like, like Sweden is, is backing off of their position, that it was discriminatory against uh, the old, the poor, uh, tourists, uh. things of that nature. So this idea that we are becoming cashless is uh, is fanciful but not really true and is not borne out by the facts yeah cash is here to stay for a little bit longer it is certainly for the foreseeable future yeah and then looking at yourself and the, the structure of treasury there and you see a number of different challenges coming down at the brinks group and everything else what, what are the key things that you guys are concerned with you know as, a, as your treasurer as, as the treasurer there or you know, what are the things that you think because people talk technology, talk to, how's it affecting you guys? What are you seeing as the future of Treasury at the moment and this coming down the line at you sort of thing? So the way I've always looked at Treasury is really two ways, bifurcated, if you will. 
there are things that we have to do every day. You know, cash has to be collected. It has to be reconciled, reported, invested, or lines reduced or, or drawn upon. You know, that's, as I like to think of that, that's the, the amino acids of, of treasury. It's the, it's the mm-hmm. most basic form of life. And it's really the right place for somebody when they're, you know, coming in to, to start their life, to understand how a company effectively breathes every day, right? Money comes in, money comes out, but at the end of the day, you better have more money than what you started with, right? The other is what I'll describe broadly as project-oriented. And and into that falls all manner of things, M&A, refinancing, strategic initiatives. And that to me is the most interesting part. And I've always, I've had a mantra ever since I had the opportunity to lead people of better, faster, cheaper. And I want to be clear about that. I, I don't think that consuming the lowest price is always the right idea. I want to be able to, to consume something that is the right price, the right value. But if there's a way for us to do something better, faster, or cheaper for our customers, and our customers are senior management and the business, period, that's who we serve. That's our sole reason for existence. And I need to be in a position where when my boss calls me and says, where are we on this? I need to be able to tell him. And that sounds so fundamental and so simple that you think, well, of course, of course you have to do that. And how hard can that be? Well, it's, it can be harder than you think. It depends on what you're doing, what the complexity is. And you know, as I look at the business units, I think there is, and I certainly I've been guilty of it in, in my career, there is, for lack of a better term, mutual maybe distrust between corporate headquarters and the operating units. You know, mm-hmm. Corporate headquarters, we, we tend to think, uh, you know, if only they knew what they were doing, you know, they would be better operators. And the business units, I think, are sometimes prone to thinking, well, if, if those guys actually had some experience doing what we're doing, they would be more sympathetic or supportive. I know that there, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, but I also know that Treasury is not a profit center. It's never going to be a profit center. We are a, you know, we're, we're a cost to the organization. Mm, yeah. And we have the opportunity to minimize those costs and to make things less expensive or less onerous. But our real role, I think, is to help the business units be better operators. If mm. we can help them with a more efficient bank structure, you know, cheaper credit support, more efficient ways of securing obligations, uh, things of that nature, that's where we can prove our value. And I really do believe that there is a customer service focus that must be brought to this. I am a huge relationship person. I am still doing business with banks banks and bankers that I've known for 25 years. There's an enormous amount of uh, goodwill and trust that is accumulated over that period of time. You're more willing to share more information with people that you know and you trust and you have experience with. And the more you tell them, the more valuable information and input they can give you. They have a better opportunity to tailor a solution. So uh, I think there's I think there's a lot of value to that and in specifically getting to the right answer to help the business do better. And I think, you know, the relationship aspect definitely has come across throughout the conversation, if you like, that you and I have had here. But the question, you know, sort of, uh, you know, as we approach the end of today's interview, and again, as always, we'll put the link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can connect to you if 
it's good to have them in your circle and their circle and everything else. But as you reflect back, we talked before and you talked about resilience, you talked about, you know, maybe you should have moved earlier in your career. And, you know, we also talked without stealing your words about making yourself feel uncomfortable in different things by pursuing different opportunities. Perhaps, you know, for the listeners, in your own words, what would you say is, what advice would you give to them? You know, again, we get, in UK and Europe, I've noticed a lot of the listeners maybe sort of treasury analyst managers developing their careers. Our US audience is a little bit more senior, actually. And some of those guys, you know, are probably sitting where you were in general dynamics a few years ago. Oh, hang on. Maybe I need to be thinking. What advice would you give across the piece sort of thing, would you say to those guys to finish off today's show, sir? Sure. You know, it, at the risk of being somewhat redundant is mm. take chances. If there's an opportunity that is appealing. And even if you have some doubt, maybe I don't have the ability to do this. Maybe I don't have all the skills yet. Throw yourself into the mix. Uh, you know, Have that conversation with your boss. Have that conversation with your boss's boss and, and try to be very clear. Because I do recognize that when we're a little bit younger and in the earlier phases, we may not know exactly where we want to go. We may not know where we want to be when we're 25 years into our career. So the likelihood is the person that you should be talking to has perspective on that. They've been there. They've, they've done that to use that tired old phrase. They can be helpful. Uh, you know, I see this as a, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking of a, a theoretical situation and a conversation that might develop around that. Uh, yeah, that could be interesting for you, but it's maybe not exactly what you think you want to do. Well, if they if were to say something like that, they clearly know something about you know, what the role is, but inquire, stretch, push, you know, there's a phrase and I, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but if there's a job that's interesting to you and you, you're not sure you can do it, you know, go after it anyway, and then learn how to do it once you get there. We're smart people, generally speaking, we are educated. I am a huge believer in getting more pedigree, you know, go and get your MBA, go and get your CFA if that's of interest, become a certified treasury professional, get the credentials that nobody can ever take away from you because they will, they will stay with you for life. And they do confer authority and knowledge that people will look at and say, oh, okay, this person has invested in themselves. They've decided that this is important. And, you know, if they're willing to make the investment in themselves, I need to make the investment in them as well. So take those chances. If that means moving internationally, then by all means, do that. I, I should have, as I said, at the, at the risk of being redundant, I should have been more open-minded to opportunities to, to move earlier on. I, I'm, I'm happy to say that I don't think it's, it's hurt me in, in the long term because I've, you know, I've sort of re- recovered from that, but I, I didn't help myself at a juncture in, in my career. So you know, take chances. Don't be willing to fail. Uh, don't be afraid to fail, I, I should say. Uh, we all fail every day in some aspect of our lives. We, we, we're, we're infallible. We're fallible creatures. So that's that should not be a concern. And I think you know it's better to get to the plate and, and swing and miss than to not get to the plate at all. So I, I don't know if I've answered the question or if I'm just rambling at this point, Mike, but I, I think it's it's important that people you know just try to figure out what they want to do and go after it. I don't think you're rambling at all, Kirk. I actually, you know, sometimes I sort of scribble notes and, you know, then just give the, the closing bit where someone says, oh, pursue this, resilience. You've done it for me. I thought it was fantastic. I'd, well, too, as we say, we'll put Kirk's details in the show notes. Kirk, great end to the show. Thank you, sir. Again, connect with him if it's worthwhile. Be resilient. 
get uncomfortable, do all the other bits. There you go. I'm trying to summarise it. I'm not going to. I'm going to shut up now. Kirk, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great show. Thank you. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, sir.